you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today our guest is Nilay Özlü, a PhD student in the Department of History at Boğaziçi University, focusing on the intersection of architecture and culture in late Ottoman cities, specifically Istanbul. Nilay, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Chris. We have kind of a cool topic today. It's a, it's a story of the transformation of Istanbul, specifically the Para region, which is, for those who know Istanbul, in the, the modern-day Beolu area. And we're going to take a look at the transformation of this region through the, the history of a family. Three generations of individuals who resided in this area while Istanbul was changing. And so we're going to follow the transformation of this family over the years as, as the city was also transforming. We want to mention for those of you who aren't accessing the podcast directly through our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, that we have an excellent selection of uh, photographs of late Ottoman Istanbul. And this is particularly important because at least one of the individuals we're talking about was actually an architect who uh, was played a pivotal role in the urban transformation of some of you know Istanbul's most prominent buildings. Okay, thank you, Chris. When I started studying like urban change, I read Rem Kolas's uh, Delirious New York, and I thought Pera was delirious back in the 19th century. With this family, I'll try to tell the story of social and spatial transformation uh, of Pera region. And uh, I'll talk about real people and real buildings in this sense. I'd like to mention here is, uh, as an architect and as a historian, uh, I'd like to underline that the history takes place within space. We kind of tend to forget this fact. So the emergence of new building types, that's kind of crucial for my research. And today I'll talk about how these new building forms occurred to tell the story of modernization of the late Ottoman Empire. And, and I think Pera region would be an excellent example for finding clues of this modernization and this vibrant change. So you mentioned we're talking about a Levantine family. I've actually had some requests from some of our listeners asking that we talk more about Levantines, which are kind of a, an interesting social slice of the, the Istanbul fabric that's often forgotten alongside some of the other major social groups. So why don't you talk about th- this, this group that we call Levantines and how our actors arrive in Istanbul. I, I really wanted to talk about these Levantines in the Ottoman era because they are kind of important. First of all, who are they? Levant uh, in French means the East, and they kind of referred to the Eastern Mediterraneans in the literature. But in the Ottoman case, it's used to name a group which are called uh, the Catholics, Latins, and Protestants. So most mostly... It is used to define a group who are living in the Ottoman lands, who are coming from Europe. So they are neither Ottoman citizens uh, nor European citizens. So it's an uh, intermediate group between these two. Yeah, they're, they, they don't fit into any of our broader categories. They use. They're neither Muslim nor the native Christian communities like Greek, Armenian, etc. And at the same time, they're not quite foreigners because they have roots in the Ottoman Empire. And this is... Essentially, their home is we're going to find out. And so we can't talk about them as foreigners, although their origins uh, are in Europe. 
Absolutely not. They are not foreigners. Most of them were born and raised in the in the Ottoman lands, but they are still called as sweet water Franks. So neither Ottoman nor European. This is kind of a, a hybrid category. But um, thinking about the 19th century Istanbul as a cosmopolitan and vibrant city, this is how how modernization kind of reflect itself in, in the social social structure of the city. And so this issue of Levantine difference actually becomes more relevant in the 19th century when European states, including the Ottomans, start to form clearer conceptions of citizenship. And of course, the citizenship of these groups, whether they belong to some European empire or to the Ottoman empire, actually does become an issue. So we're talking about a particular Levantine family today. As we said, Levantines do at some point originate in Europe. Let's talk about how this family arrived to Ottoman Istanbul. Okay, this family is called the Valerie family. The first representative of this family who came to Istanbul was Edward Valerie. He came to Istanbul in 1806 with the uh, entourage of French ambassador, General Jorge Sebastiani de la Porta. And he was the chief pastry cook of the ambassador. And so the, emb- the European embassies were located outside of the center of Istanbul, the, the area that, you know, you call Sultan Ahmed and Fatih. And in this area on the other side of the Halic, the European embassies were, of course, located in Para. Good question, Chris, because I really wanted to talk about the embassies and their impact on the region. And their impact was quite interesting because all these Levantine and European families were settled around their embassies, but the embassies weren't located in the historic peninsula. Rather, it was forbidden, and they were kind of pushed further away to Pera, which means the other, the further in Greek. So these are not, with with Napoleon, of course, these are not new embassies. The 19th century may have been the period when the Ottomans got their first uh, embassies throughout Europe, but European embassies existed in the Ottoman Empire long before that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it is how the how Pera kind of started changing uh, its context and how it becomes like a cultural and economic center, like a trade center for the Europeans. So that was that was really crucial. And we mentioned the Levantine families, and they were in a different subcategories. So so the embassies kind of acted as courts for their uh, uh, law issues. These embassies are quite interesting as a as the focal points of culture and law and economy and finance in in that sense. So we have to read them uh, from this perspective. And that especially becomes important during the 19th century when some of the legal and financial practices that are already embedded in these you know consuls and embassies actually become incorporated into the Ottoman Empire's larger you know set of administrative practices. They're sort of points of dissemination in some way. Absolutely. Actually, I have a great example for that, uh, for the transformation, showing the influence of the embassies and ambassadors on the Ottoman Empire. For example, in our case, this uh, General Sebastiani, who worked in Istanbul d- during the era of Selim III, uh, he wrote several, several letters to, uh, to Selim III, and he wanted to talk to the sultan face to face i mean in in private but this was against the the tradition of the ottomans because there should be an intermediary guy uh, to reach the sultan so it was unacceptable and 
eventually Selim III didn't accept it. And I have documents for it. It was quite interesting. And he says, benim vezirim. Bunların usulü belli oldu. Böyle taciz ettikten sonra cevap verilmek iktiza edecek. Böyle olduktan sonra şimdiden cevap verilsin. Resmi adetten hariç muamele eylemem. So by the beginning of the 19th century, Selim III didn't want to talk to the ambassador. But later it became just the opposite as the ambassadors became huge influences. Uh, and there were special welcoming ceremonies for them in the palace. And so it's a little bit of foreshadowing for the story of these three generations, you know, as Para is rising in importance within the Istanbul, you know, urban landscape. So too, is this family going to rise? And, and here we have a, a humble pastry chef working in, in, in the French embassy. I don't know. How, what information do we have about him? Actually, to say the truth, we don't know much about him. It's just he came to Istanbul, he settled down in Istanbul and he didn't want to go back to his country, whatever it is. France or Italy, and um, he rather find Istanbul a better place for him to settle down and raise his family in here. It shows us clues about how Istanbul is becoming a vibrant and dynamic city in in the European context and full of opportunities for people to come and settle and uh, create their own businesses. As we don't know much about him. I can just talk about the space uh, he inhabited. It was the French embassy. And let me give a little historic background about this. It was uh, first built in 1592 as a timber structure. When uh, Edward first came, he kind of worked in this timber structure, but it was burned in 1831. And in 1839, architect Lorescu uh, built a new one, a new embassy building in stone and it was completed in 1847 and today what we see is basically the, the, the same structure and I have some pictures of it from the mid-19th century. So our pastry chef uh, Valerie was witness to some of these changes taking place within the I guess the Levantine community in Istanbul at this time. Yes, so maybe it's now time to uh, jump to the second generation of this Levantine family, uh, which is represented by François Valéry. François Valéry kind of uh, continued his father's job, but he opened a café for himself, which was called First Valéry Shekerle Mecisi, uh, and we know that it was located at the corner of Grand Rue de Pera, which is now Istiklal Street, and um, at, the, at the crossing of Sahne Sokak. Uh, and it is now where this Chichik Passage, famous Chichik Passage, is located. So Valéry opened his café in 1850s and stayed there until 1870, when the great fire of Pera kind of ruined everything in, in the area. The second generation was quite different from the first generation as uh, François Valéry became the Shekhar Demeji Shehriari, which means the chief confectioner of the Ottoman Sultan. So he basically worked for the Ottoman Sultan, providing sweets and desserts for the, for the court. And uh, it is funny, we found some letters of uh, François Valéry written to the sublime port to Ali Pasha and requesting the money which was unpaid to him. Yeah, in just one generation, this family goes from, you know, the ranks of a humble pastry chef in the French embassy to 
this individual Francois, who's sort of privy to the um, highest circles of Ottoman governance here, corresponding with with Ali Pasha. Absolutely, and uh, for example, he was he also took part in the opening ceremony of the the famous Tunnel, and he basically catered there. And um, this also shows how Ottomans kind of changed their habits of welcoming people and organizing receptions and how they did it in a in a very European manner. And we know from the press that uh, champagnes and orders were uh, offered to the people who were at the opening ceremony. Yeah, we, we are, we're supposed to have actually a podcast on Tunnel, so I won't talk about it right now. But, you know, it's a very self-consciously European project. In fact, it's touted as the second subway in Europe after the, the London subway. And, and for this to be built right in the financial district of Istanbul and Pera, it, it very clearly illustrates the way in which the transformation of Istanbul is taking place. And here our, our Levantine family is literally witness to it as sort of a side actor in this drama. Which is important is to realize that this modernization wasn't only economic or military, but just focusing on the gastronomic culture would give us Uh, a lot of insights about about the scope of this modernity, how French or European or Frank modes of eating, drinking and consuming becomes popular in the area and how it kind of affected Ottomans and Ottoman elites. So Pera is not only changing within its own limits, but it's also uh, becomes the point of attraction for the Ottomans who are totally interested in discovering this Uh, new Frank culture. So let me talk a little bit more about this François uh, Valéry. We don't know much about him, but uh, as we know, he was married to Hélène uh, Valéry and uh, they later changed the name of their their shop to Café Valéry. It was quite famous in the area and pretty well known. So they turned out to be a rich and wealthy Levantine family who were established in Istanbul. So after François died in 1881, uh, his wife Helen Valéry moved their shop to to another place in Grand Rue de Pera in Ristoki Passage. With the death of Helen in 1891, Café Valéry was closed, but the, the, the culinary tradition of the family was continued by another persona, another Levantine. It was Edward Lebon, Uh, who owned the uh, Café Lebon, which was also located in uh, Grand Rue de Pera. He used to be an apprentice at Café Valerie and married their daughter. And uh, the tradition of taste kind of continu- continues under under the name of Lebon. And uh, Monsieur Lebon was also defined as the Shekerjubashi. Uh, so this tradition of being in the in the royal circles, uh, being close to the royal cir- circles, also also continues. He opened his famous uh, cafe, uh, which was located in Shark Passage or Passage Oriental, uh, also in 1850s. And in 1860, Cafe Le Bon becomes very very famous for its quality of wine, champagnes, bonbons, patisseries, and uh, they brought a French oven. So they brought an oven from France, and uh, they were quite famous in terms of bringing this French taste to Istanbul. 
And many of you would know this Cafe Lebon is uh, Marquis Pastanisi or Cafe Marquis, which is now located right next to Dart. This Cafe Marquis is quite uh, famous as it's left its uh, mark in, in an era uh, where Ottoman elites were frequenting this cafe and uh, it is kind of mimicking the French cafes in Paris. It's very conscious consumption. In trying to emulate a certain culture, you need to, you know, consume certain form of uh, not not just any drink or or or sweet, but the specific uh, French variety that was coveted, and in the specific space of a, a European style cafe, we can say. Absolutely, actually, there are some uh, literature about how these French cafes were different from the Turkish or Ottoman kahvehanes. Uh, they intentionally go to Para and they intentionally uh, constructed their uh, social networks within these cafes. Some of the famous patrons of this cafe were Namık Kemal, Shinasi, Ziya Pasha, Mehmet Rauf, Tevfik Fikret, Abdulhak Hamid, Ahmet Hashim, and Yakup Kadri. So probably these names would give us a picture of the, the intellectual atmosphere of the cafe and uh, how not only the Europeans, Levantines, non-Muslims, but also the Ottoman intellectuals were were using this cafe as a socializing plus a modernizing space. So as an architect, I'd like to tell a couple words about the decoration of the cafe. It was decorated by um, Alexander Valery and it is also famous for its tiled panels, which were brought from Europe and they were signed by J.A. Arno. Uh, there was supposed to be four panels which are representing four seasons, but only two of them uh, remains today, uh, the spring and the fall. So the decoration resembles the Arnova trend, which which became popular in, the, in, the, in Istanbul during the late 19th century. So it's a good example of how European aesthetics reached to Istanbul in a very uh, seamless and fast manner during the 19th century. Right, and these intellectual and uh, aesthetic uh, movements flow through the personal networks of, of families and uh, various intellectuals, merchants, and uh, bureaucrats that are using this space. Exactly, and how it comes from Europe to Istanbul is through agents agents of transmission, and this is uh, what I'm also interested in. So in the third part of this podcast, I'll talk about uh, a specific agent, Alexander Valery. And so Alexander Valery, unlike his father and his grandfather, does not continue in the cafe business and, and, and the confectionery arts. That We leave that to the son-in-law of Francois Valery. Alexander Valery, Valery rather pursues uh, architecture. Yes, exactly. He he totally chose a different profession and he chose to go to Paris at some point and uh, educated in the famous Ecole de Beaux-Arts. Uh, but he also represents uh, a trend in the Levantine community uh, where they sent their kids to Europe to get a good education. Right, because at the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned that Levantines are not quite foreigners. They have some roots in the Ottoman Empire, but at the same time, they have this foot in Europe that allows them to very, perhaps a little more easily send their children back to be educated in Europe. Of course, 
any well-to-do family in the Ottoman Empire would have considered sending their children to be educated in Europe, but maybe not all had the opportunity. The Levantines have this easy link of, of language, culture, and even national, nationality. Yeah, yeah, they, they are part of the Ottoman community, but they have kind of organic links with Europe. And when they return to the Ottoman Empire, they immediately become recognizable because of their European education. And this is what happened to Alexander Valery as he spent nine years in Paris uh, and seven years of architecture education in Ecole de Beaux-Arts with the famous architect Monsieur Cucar. He kind of absorbed the architectural tradition of, uh, of Paris, which was kind of ruling at that time. Uh, and Ecole de Beaux-Arts was the trademark for classical and romantic style in architecture. And people from all around the world come and get educated in the art and architecture departments of Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And this, this style was, this dominant style was kind of disseminated from Paris to towards all around the world. And uh, Alexander Valery was a, was a good representative of this uh, dissemination. And so he must have constructed some of the prominent examples of uh, this late 19th century French architecture in Istanbul. I'm, for our listeners who, who know a little about Istanbul, who have walked around the streets of the older parts of the city, we can already sort of imagine what buildings Valery could have been associated with. What were some of his... Uh, projects that he was involved with? Actually, he's, uh, he was quite well-known and prominent in, in the late 19th century Istanbul. He worked not only for the Ottoman government, uh, but he had several jobs for the Europeans and the Ottoman elites and the, for the non-Muslim community as well. Uh, just to count a few examples, uh, the, the most famous bu- buildings of him would be uh, the Ottoman Imperial Bank, which is now South Galata, and Dünya Umumiye Istanbul Erkek Lisesi, and the Ottoman Imperial Museum, as we know, the Istanbul Archaeology Museum, and right across Sanayi Nefise Mektebi, Eski Şark Eserleri Müzesi, and Pera Palace, of course, uh, which is recently renovated, and Cercle Dorian, which was the Emek Sineması, Union Française, which was also located on İstiklal Street. So you've mentioned the bank, but also schools, museums, Various uh, buildings and spaces with different social functions, all, as you said, stamped with this uh, education received at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris. Yes and no, because Valéry was not a strict follower of the Ecole de Beaux-Arts style. In, in some of his buildings, we can see different attempts for using Ottoman architecture. For example, uh, Ottoman Imperial Bank would be a perfect example to analyze this uh, perspective. The, the northern facade, I mean the facade looking at the Voivoda Street, Bankalar Caddesi, is uh, made in a strictly neo-Renaissance manner. And it was the, the stereotype for the, for the financial buildings in the era. But when, when you approach the building, from the uh, from the Hadith side, from the southern facade, it is totally a different building. It is it's used timber elements, uh, baroque elements, oval windows. So you can't imagine how these two facades belong to the same building. So Valery kind of uh, likes to play with the shapes and forms, and um, his hybrid identity could be well reflected in his buildings as well. Well, that seems like quite a powerful metaphor that the side that's facing sort of old Istanbul has this 
as, as we said, sort of incorporates these Ottoman motifs, whereas the side that is facing towards the other half of the European side of Istanbul is totally based on, we could say, European aesthetics. Yeah, that's the first thing that comes into my mind as well. So it's it's a powerful uh, semiology there, and uh, it's it's a it's a quite interesting building as it was built for the European powers. It is kind of resembling the European economic dominance towards European empire, but still he insisted on using some Ottoman forms in its southern facade. So the next building I want to ask about is actually Para Palace. It's a Famous building for a lot of people who have been to Istanbul, both the tourists, but anyone who's resident. I, I've, I myself have never you know, stayed in Parapalas. I don't know if I ever will be able to, but others have. How similar is the building? You know, you said it was renovated recently. Is it renovated in a style that's sort of true to the original design or... Actually, the, the main hall and the, the public areas didn't change much. Uh, I, I made an interview with the architects. It was Kaba architects, and uh, they were really uh, careful for trying to preserve the the original texture of the building. Of course, the, the rooms were modernized and the, the new infrastructure was implemented. But when you go to the f- famous uh, uh, ballroom, you can see... Uh, the authenticity of the room with its furniture and it with its its famous uh, cupola decorated with blue glasses and the famous elevator uh, which was built in the Arnova style. So uh, of course, any renovation would erase the authenticity, but I think they were kind of careful in uh, in preserving some of the significant features because it was. Uh, what distinguishes Parapalas from other modern five-star hotels. It caters to an audience that may be looking to experience that old uh, historical Para or Istanbul, just imagining in their brief visit to the, to the city. That, that, that in itself is maybe a, a topic for another discussion, the modern refashioning of Istanbul, you know, with a look to the past. Yeah, actually, it's quite interesting this touristic perspective because I want to talk. I wanted to talk about how the tourists perceive Para Palace in the 19th century and how they perceive it today. Uh, during the 19th century, it was the representative of an international chain, and it was the first international hotel in Istanbul, and it was the ultimate luxury, and it was. Uh, purposefully decorated in an orientalist manner. So uh, outside was, again, designed in a neoclassical fashion. But when you enter the palace, when the 19th century tourists um, coming from Europe with the Orient Express reaches the hotel, he or she f- finds uh, himself in a in an oriental palace with the rugs and with the furniture, with the decoration and with the um, horseshoe-shaped arches. So this was built like a dream palace for the tourist who is in search for an oriental dream. And today I think it's quite different. There are still oriental tones, but it is more of a reflection of 19th century uh, Ottoman, which was a disconnected past. So uh, when you go there, you kind of feel that it's a historic place and you kind of uh, try to, f- 
to reach that history towards architecture. So we have to be careful in what signifies what in terms of historical representations, especially uh, trying to read architectural forms. Yeah, it's the same thing we always talk about when we talk about literature on the podcast. You have to reconstruct the context within which the building and the space was used in the period you're studying and sort of put yourself in the mind of, of those people. It's one of the foundations of historical studies, but especially when we move into realms like art, uh, literature, it's so easy to let our own uh, conceptions of what this represents uh, get in the way of trying to understand that past. Absolutely. And uh, let me say a couple words on the perception of Parapalas on the 19th century. It was the representation of the ultimate luxury. And for me, it becomes the palace of the public. People can throw parties and receptions uh, in Parapalas, and it becomes like an interaction center for the elites of Istanbul. Uh, so it had a significant role not in terms of only architecture but in terms of changing the the social space so we found several documents stating how the the ottoman bureaucracy and european elites and ottoman elites kind of interact in those famous parties of paris so it kind of resembles the shiny past uh, which is most missed today uh, the old glorious days of paris so one of the things we've been talking about in this episode is representation. And it reminded me of the uh, an episode we did a few weeks ago with Emily Neumeyer about Osman Hamdi Bey and how he was involved with projects that were very consciously representing the Ottoman Empire to the world in a certain way. Architecture must have also been part of this story. Absolutely. Uh, I also listened to Emily's podcast, which, which was quite successful. And uh, I would like to mention the interaction of Osman Hamdi Bey with Valerie. Uh, actually, they collaborated a lot. They uh, met in uh, Istanbul right after Valerie returned to Istanbul. And there was an Elif Ba exhibition where Valerie displayed his uh, measured drawings of Ottoman monuments. So Osman Hamdi was very much influenced by him. And after their first meeting, uh, probably they became friends and he asked him to build his first building, which was the School of Fine Arts, Sanayi Nefisemektebi in Istanbul. So this must be a grand project for a new graduate. But we can, from this perspective, we can see the influence of or the importance of Ecole de Beaux-Arts education in the Ottoman lands and uh, with some French education, Osman Hamdi Bey must have felt that Valerie would be the right person to initiate his his project. So uh, Valerie not only designed and built the, the school, but he became the Fenni Mimari Hojası. So he became the first uh, instructor of architecture in the school. So what Valerie designed was the modern face of the empire. His unique style in unifying the, the classical bazaar forms with uh, some Ottoman elements was uh, quite interesting. And uh, not only this, the scale of the buildings were different, but also their forms and functions were different. So in this podcast today, I tried to emphasize how these new building forms kind of dominated the city, but not only architecturally, but also socially, they transformed the, the, the fabric. So we can trace the 
urban transformation of Istanbul through singular agents. Well, I think you've done it in a very interesting way. You've tried to tell the story of a family and following these generations through a transformation that's taking place and connecting these individuals to all sorts of larger events and trends that really bring to life late 19th century Istanbul in a way that even for me as a historian studying the late 19th century, I never understood how these people and places are connected, right? They're all individual bits and pieces that are part of the story, but you've really sewed it together for us. And I'm, I'm sure for those of those who are listening who know Istanbul and know this uh, urban geography in these spaces, this is a really uh, welcome contribution. Thank you, Chris. I was really happy if I was able to show a fragment of Uh, life in the late Ottoman era uh, because it's not only time or it's not only space but the interaction of these two with people, with agents that that produces real history in my perspective. That's absolutely right and I think it's extremely relevant today as it's sort of a weird thing to say but Turkey and the world is rediscovering Istanbul historically and as a, as a destination or whatever you want to call it to keep in mind the past contexts that constructed these destinations of the present. It's very dangerous to be trapped in, in nostalgia towards Pera because uh, all through my childhood I was raised with how Pera and Beyoğlu used to be super westernized, super elite and super European places where you can enjoy the tastes, tastes and culture of Europe. So, I mean, this glorious Ottoman past, we should be careful for distancing ourselves from this uh, nostalgia of glorious and hybrid and cosmopolitan para, which kind of remained in the history. It's not a good tactic to, to try to reconstruct history through architecture. It's a very, very dangerous thing, which is being implemented today with Top Çukışlası and other things. Being trapped in the nostalgia of the past and trying to reconstruct the the spaces of the past wouldn't bring the, the glorious past back to us. So this is what I'm trying to underline here. And, you know, and seeing just how, to some extent, this urban transformation was unorganic in the sense that it's taking place with conscious actors trying to consciously send a certain message, that should undermine to a large extent this idea of the natural way that the city is, was just supposed to be. That's the way it was, of course. You know, lastly, I'll mention again the photographs we have on our website, please check them out. This, this, this, this conversation has, for a little bit, for me at least, allowed me to look at these photographs in a little bit different way than I was looking at them before. And, and I hope our, our listeners will as well. We also have a select bibliography on some of the topics we've discussed today for those who want to consult that for further reading. That's all for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care. <laughs>